0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hey
1: everyone, welcome to Cyberwire X, a series of specials where we highlight important security topics affecting security professionals worldwide. I'm Rick Howard, the Chief Security Officer, Chief Analyst, and Senior Fellow at the Cyberwire. In today's episode, we are talking about double extortion ransomware. A program note each Cyberwire X special features two segments. In the first part, we'll hear from an industry expert on the topic at hand, and in the second part, we'll hear from our show's sponsor for their point of view. And since I brought it up, here's a word from today's sponsor, Code 42. Did you know that there's a one in three chance that your company will lose intellectual property or IP when an employee quits? Cybersecurity teams are facing unprecedented challenges when it comes to protecting sensitive corporate data from exposure, leak and theft. The annual data exposure report of 2022 from Code42 revealed three key trends that are accelerating insider risk. First, the continued adoption of cloud technologies and a lack of visibilities into them. Second, the impact of the Great Resignation and departing employees' theft of IP and sensitive data. And third, the challenges of the new hybrid remote workforce and uncertainty over how to address it. As insider risk grows, Code42's insider risk management approach helps protect data without slowing down the business. Learn more at code42.com slash showme. And we thank Code42 for sponsoring our show. I'm joined by Wayne Moore, the Chief Information Security Officer for Simply Business, a business insurance company based out of London. And Wayne is one of our regular subject matter experts here at the CyberWire's hash table. Wayne, thanks for coming on the show. It's nice to be back. Thanks, Rick. So, Wayne, here in America, it feels like we've turned around twice, and all of a sudden, double extortion ransomware is everywhere. And probably our highest-profile double extortion ransomware attack to date is the Colonial Pipeline at Ransomware Attacks of 2021. Are you all seeing the same thing across the pond in the UK? Is double extortion ransomware just the standard practice now everywhere we are? Yes,
0: definitely. It seems to be um, the default approach now.
1: So, just explain to our audience what that is. What's double extortion ransomware? Why don't we give that really fancy name? Well, started
0: out with, originally, ransomware was once they'd infected your systems, they'd demand some money for you to get some keys to restore those systems. But as we got wiser and smarter, I hope most of us anyway, we learned that good (laughs) backup strategies were what was going to help us get through and mitigate that risk. But obviously, as we got better at restoring our systems and meeting those RTOs, our adversaries realized, well, they're still going to make their money. And they found another novel way to extort us for some cash. So they decided that they would start publishing or threatening to publish the information that they have managed to exfiltrate as part of the attack to either publicly online or to competitors or wherever. But it's that additional threat after your systems have been locked up to try and get you to pay regardless of whether you can restore your systems or not.
1: So five years ago, the standard defense against the old-fashioned ransomware, like you said, was simply just to have a good backup program. So even if the bad guys encrypted all of your data like they did in the Colonial Pipeline attacks, that was 100,000 gigabytes of data. We would just restore from backups and everything would be peachy. But that's no longer adequate, is it? If the bad guy is also exfiltrating 100,000 gigabytes of data and selling it to God knows who on the darknet, that data is exposed even if you do have a good backup and restore program. So what are you doing in addition in your program, in addition to the backup program, to safeguard against that?
0: When you start looking at the threat of this data being published or sold on and things like that, we're talking about reputation risk starts to come into it more than operational risk, or it's not only Mm -hmm. about operational risk anymore, shall we say. So your mitigation strategies need to be working out, well, how are you going to manage that reputational risk? So things that we're seeing people do now are having much better PR communication strategies, making sure that those comms plans are more readily executed than they may have been prior. And you're more likely to be in a position now where you may need to consider paying that ransom because paying that ransom may buy you some more time to work out how are you going to get ahead of the messaging that might be coming out with it being published. So you need to be having those conversations with your boards and your your um, senior managers about there's even more likely we may need to pay the ransom to buy ourselves some time. Are you comfortable with that? Is that something you want to do? So looking at comm strategies, looking at decisions around paying ransom, and if you are looking at potentially paying ransoms, it's about having... People out there, providers that have to help you negotiate that ransom, there are whole entities set up for handling that. Instant response plans need to change as well to make sure that you are potentially executing on those PR comms plans much sooner than you would normally in an operational recovery scenario.
1: So what you're talking about here is resilience planning and crisis action planning. And like you said, deciding on whether or not you're going to pay the ransomware, that's not something you should be doing in the middle of battle, right? In the middle, in the heat of the moment, that should be a long conversation you have with boards and senior leadership about whether or not they'd be even willing to do that. So, how do you approach that subject with your senior leaders about whether or not they want to do that or not?
0: I think just running the scenario with them and just being open, this is a real this is a real scenario that we may encounter. So, I prefer to just approach it directly and say, "Look, this is the scenario in our industry in, in financial services, there are some real examples to draw on as well, which really brings it home. And the next thing is, is painting the scenario, a situation where you're unable to recover and that could impact your customers, your ability to provide services, your shareholders, everyone. And if your only option to save the business is to pay the ransom, would you do it? It's really putting it in those realistic terms and some real scenarios and drawing on what's happened in the industry out there really helps with that.
1: Those kinds of things don't have to be that complicated. I know we can do these exercises where it's an all-day affair and all the executives have to spend a whole day participating. But it doesn't have to be that complicated. I know in my last job, I would just invite the senior leaders into a lunch. They would come because it's a fee meal. Even senior leaders want a free meal. You just drop the scenario on the table. What if we got ransomed? Would we consider paying the ransom? Just get their thoughts at least initially, so we could draft the plan. Do you guys have kind of a range of scenarios that you run executives to, or is it all very formal? Before even approaching the board or
0: senior leadership, it would be with my stakeholders that I'm meeting with on a regular basis, just running the scenario and saying, listen, what are your thoughts on this? And it's interesting listening to different leaders in the business, how they see things. Legal have a different view from, say, someone who's looking after the operations side of things. That's really interesting, understanding the different perspectives on the same problem because they can come at it very differently sometimes. So I like to get that kind of understanding before bringing it maybe a little more formally to a, a, a meeting with the board or senior management or something like that.
1: Does the topic ever come up on the probability of the in the criminals actually delivering on the keys because it's not 100%, it's a lot less than that? Is that part of the equation they have to figure out? Definitely.
0: I mean, when I'm saying about being open and honest, I've also got to paint the reality there. I think (laughs) last stats I saw was like, I think about 50% of cases aren't recoverable because either the bad guys made a mistake with the encryption algorithms or they delivered a bad key or some kind of mess up. I mean, they're human as well. They make mess ups. Definitely part of the equation to say, listen, there's only a 50% chance that if we pay – I mean, I'm assuming those numbers are correct. But there's a, a probability associated with whether recovery is reasonable after that, that that payment. So that's definitely going to be part of it. Otherwise, you're providing assurances that are not real.
1: And even if you got the key and whether or not how easy it is to recover it, because sometimes you get a messy process to unlock everything. So that all has to figure into the equation.
0: Exactly. Sometimes just burning it all and restoring from scratch is much simpler than <laughs> trying to surgically unpick all <laughs> all the problems that have been
1: introduced. <laughs> I was reviewing the Colonial Pipeline attacks uh, last week, and that company, the Colonial Pipeline, they clearly had a plan because the message popped up on one of the operators' consoles to say, hey, we got your ransomware. Within an hour, they started shutting down the pipeline flow. And that same day, they notified the FBI and had $5 million in Bitcoin ready to go and they gave it to the dark side uh, ransomware group that day. So they were ready to go. So they had already decided that we're going to pay the ransomware and not worry about it. That's called crisis planning, I think.
0: Yes. I mean, that's an excellent example of good planning. You know, I think with the double extortion, your planning and practicing has also got to be on how you are going to engage with the public on that as well. It's not just being ready to pay and get your systems back up and running and report to the right entities. It's also how are you going to manage that message if it leaks out? And that may be something that we don't practice often enough.
1: Yeah, that was part of the Colonial Pipeline plan. They they announced day, or the next day to the public, and they did every day until the crisis was averted. So, yeah, they definitely had a plan in place that, to go forward. One of the other tools that we could use to prevent the second part of the extortion ransomware is encrypting our material data. If we encrypted our data so that they couldn't pass it to anybody else and cause us harm, isn't that an option on the table that we should be thinking about too?
0: Yes, absolutely. And then it puts more emphasis on how you're protecting the keys. If it's all very well and good encrypting, and you should do that, and especially if it's not all encryptable, you should certainly be prioritizing your most sensitive data. But mm-hmm. if you aren't looking after those keys and during the operation, they've had enough time to kind of work out how your key management system works, intercept all of that, they could technically still get it and
1: um, unencrypt it. So let's go back to the com plan, too. I mean, because that takes practice. That's not something you roll out during the crisis either. You need to have a pretty firm idea of what you're going to do because there's kind of two options here, right? You can either announce early with incomplete information. And then that runs the risk of when you change the information layer, customers and other people thinking that you're withholding information or lying about. It. So that's one thing you had to worry about. And then the other way you can do it is wait till you have perfect information. And then you get accused of withholding information and not telling your customers what's going on. So your leadership has to decide which way to go there, right?
0: Yeah, 100%. Because dealing with reputational risk may be a little more tricky than the operational side of things. Yeah, because it's quite—it's you can at least test and predict what's going to happen in the operational side of things. But it can be quite hard to predict how the public will react depending on the context and all of that. So have some empathy for the people that are going through this with you, like mm. your customers and things like that. And understand that they also want to know what's going on. And so there's potentially a middle ground there in the sense that you could go in early and say, listen, we know that something's up. We don't have complete information just yet, but they need to know when you're going to update them next, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? Managing expectations about what you know to date and certainly not lying about the situation. If you're caught out on that, then you do a reputation much more damage.
1: Even the perception of lying, even though you weren't, that's even a trickier line to walk sometimes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's difficult, isn't it? Because if you keep quiet about it, it leads to even more speculation about what you're not saying. and all Right. Kind of thing. So it's, as I'm saying, it's very difficult and there's a lot of people that need to be trained for how to interact with the media, how to say things, you know, it's 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 definitely something you need to have practiced and trained for. We maybe have people trained in our businesses for that, but how often have they practiced that? Yeah,
1: well? practice. Yeah, you need to practice. Yeah. It's a lot different when it's live, right? It's a lot yes, different absolutely. that way. <laughs> Yeah. let's uh, raise it up to the strategic level. This is, we're really talking about resilience here. And one of my favorite definitions of resilience is to be able to continuously deliver your services, regardless of some cyber event, like a ransomware attack. If you look at the Colonial Pipeline attacks, they had a great plan. They bought the keys and they had a calm plan, but still the United States on the Eastern seaboard, we were out of fuel for over a week. So they didn't really meet the resilience strategy objective. What are things we could do to make sure we are continuing to deliver the service, especially for like your business, Simply Business? Are there things you can do on the IT side to make sure everything is working as we work through the crisis?
0: You can do a lot for the things that you're in control of. So your world and the systems you build and all of that. But where it gets really tricky is in the supply chain. That could be quite a complex supply chain. We're talking nth degree on that chain. Options are, first of all, at least getting a good understanding of your critical suppliers, the ones that if something goes wrong, they impact your most critical business systems, the ones that have almost a direct revenue impact quite quickly. You've got to understand what their security posture is like. What are they doing? What are their third parties doing for all of this? So your third party assurance processes need to be in there. And if they are really critical and you have anything going wrong with you has a major impact downstream as well i know the fca is looking at ops resilience in this area where if you have a material impact to the whole industry you have a lot more control you need to put in place so you need to look at that and think do i need backup suppliers in case of one of them being hit you know so if that's a payment provider maybe it's so risky that you do need to spend the extra money to have another payment provider that you can swap out in the case of them being being hit that kind of thing
1: so it's much more than backups and encryption is what you're saying. It's a much bigger resilience plan that we have to consider, right? And as the evolution of ransomware has happened, I guess that's what we're all saying to senior security executives. Think more strategically and not with the, the thing that's happening right now, I guess. Would you agree yeah. with that? That's right. And I think that's also why if
0: you look at here in the UK, in the financial sector anyway, the FCA has got this sort of operational resilience initiative that they're putting in. And There's been some deliverables early this year where financial institutions have had to look at their business processes, the resilience around those processes, their vulnerabilities, and put a plan in place to shore up those risks. But a big part of it is not just about the business itself. As I said, it's also about ensuring that the suppliers to your business and those third parties mm-hmm. are also getting up to scratch. So even non-financial institutions are now having to raise their posture to, to support so the kind of network effect that that regulation is starting to have, which you know could have a lot of benefit in this area.
1: Well, that's all good stuff, Wayne, but we're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, Wayne Moore, the Chief Information Security Officer for Simply Business. Wayne, thanks for coming on the show. Always so a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Rick. Next up is my colleague Dave Bittner's interview with Nathan Hunstad, the deputy CISO for Code Forty Two, our show sponsor.
2: So today we are talking about um, double extortion and, and how we got there, got here <laughs> and some of the things that we can do uh, in the face of that. Can we start off with a little bit of the backstory here? I mean, I, I think, um, you know, we saw the rise of ransomware and, and that led to a certain set of presumptions about how folks could respond to it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, ransomware has been around for quite some time. Uh, the earliest uh, instance of ransomware, I think, dates back all the way to 1989, um, actually. But hmm. it didn't become a huge security issue until around 2014 or 2015 in that time frame. And, and like you said, when when it started taking over the headlines and affecting organizations, there was really just one attack. And that was the the ransomware... Uh, creators would gain access to uh, an organization's network and sensitive data, and they would just encrypt the data and keep the data there encrypted and request a ransom to provide the decryption key. And so at that time, since the data was, was just sitting there, it was you know unreachable, but if you had good backups – and, and recent backups and he had thoroughly tested and, and so forth, an organization could choose to not pay the ransom and restore their data uh, from backup and go on their way. And so that was the operating principle that a lot of security teams and organizations uh, used when they were talking about how to deal with ransomware. And that changed starting a few years ago. And that's when the ransomware proprietors started adding uh, another tactic. And, and like you said, it, it led to uh, what's called a double extortion ransomware, hmm. where they're not only encrypting the data now, but they're also exfiltrating it. And so that does change kind of the, the response for security teams because it's not enough to simply be able to restore from a backup and get your business operating again. Now you have to be concerned about the loss and public exposure of the data that they were able to exfiltrate while they were encrypting it.
2: And so where does that put organizations these days in terms of best practices to protect themselves?
3: So... It's still incredibly important uh, to have those backups in place um, and to regularly test them. It's it's not enough to simply say that you've backed up the data. If you're not testing your, your restoration processes, then uh, you don't know how good your backups are. So that that remains, I'd say. What is new is dealing with the data exfiltration side of it, because this really needs to be treated as um, any kind of data exfiltration event. And so knowing what data was taken, knowing what the sensitivity of that data is, and knowing what, what legal or regulatory... Uh, consequences there are to the public release of that data is something that security teams also need to keep in mind when they're dealing with these kinds of attacks.
2: Can you walk me through some of the specifics of that? I mean, if if I'm an organization and and I receive, uh, you know, a notice from one of these ransomware groups and they say, hey, you know, guess what? We've taken a bunch of your data and if you don't pay us, we're going to start releasing it. First of all, how do I know that they're telling the truth? That they're just not trying to, you know, put one over on me to get me to write them a check? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. That's
3: where you're likely going to want to engage a, a forensic investigator uh, if you don't have those skills within your own security team uh, to look for those indicators of compromise, um, and most likely. Uh, If they are telling the truth and not just trying to pull a fast one on you, uh, you will see that evidence of of encrypted data in your environment. From there, you need to talk with asset owners um, and and the business to understand, all right, what's in that encrypted file? Uh, What's the value and where do we take it from here?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, it really becomes a, a, a risk conversation then, I suppose. Is, I mean, is that a, a fair way to say it? Yes, absolutely. And the risk is much more
3: open-ended than it is with just a simple you know, denial of service or, or business interruption kind of ransomware case where you may be down, your servers may be uh, inoperable, but if you can restore from backup, you're basically uh, – to the point where you were before the ransomware attack started. With this double extortion ransomware, that's not the case. You can still be up and running from a business and operational perspective, but the risk is still there with regards to the possibility that that data may be publicly exposed. So it is much more of of an open-ended risk conversation uh, that security teams need to have.
2: Yeah, you know, I've heard folks talk about um, using some technology uh, to try to mitigate this sort of thing. You know, having um, uh, encrypting everything. You know, all of our data, even while at rest, is going to be encrypted. We'll decrypt it on the fly for our own use, and that way, if someone takes something from us, it'll be useless to them because we've already encrypted it. Uh, where do we stand with that? I mean, is that is that a practical solution that folks are actually adopting? You know, I, I think that there are some benefits to that kind of solution, but it's certainly not something
3: that I've found has been easily implementable across an organization. For very narrow and probably, you know, your, your most sensitive or the data that has some regulatory uh, requirements around it, taking that approach uh, can, can help to some extent. But at the end of the day... The data has to be decrypted somewhere for it to be useful. Whether it's you know in a downstream system, whether it's a, an analyst doing some kind of, you know just just business related uh, work on their endpoint, the data is going to be unencrypted somewhere, so that kind of approach isn't going to work to completely mitigate the risk.
2: And so what are organizations to do? I mean, what are your recommendations as you're out and about consulting with people, you know, working, uh, collaborating with your own colleagues? What sort of advice are you putting out there? Yeah, so the good news is that there there are things you can do to help mitigate this.
3: And it does really come down to a lot of the, the security fundamentals. So, things like an asset inventory and um, knowing where all the data is in your environment um, and who's responsible for that data. So, that, that can be a daunting task uh, depending on the size of your organization, but it it's not something that's impossible to do. So, talking with your business partners. Uh, Putting this as part of your business continuity and disaster recovery planning or tabletop sessions to sit down and ask, all right, what data does your business process use? Where is it? Um, Drilling down into important uh, details like, does this data exist on user endpoints? Is it only in a server? Where does this data travel? Uh, And what other Business applications, does it go through? So, once you have that kind of high level inventory and some of those process and data flows of the data in your environment, then you can do two things. Uh, you can identify any gaps uh, in your security controls where there may not be the appropriate security visibility to data in certain applications, for example. And if you ever find yourself uh, dealing with one of these double extortion ransomware attacks, you'll be much more certain of the data that was actually taken, and then you can have that informed risk risk discussion with the people within the organization who need to be a part of that.
2: Can we touch on reputational damage here? Because it it strikes me that um, there are a couple elements here. I mean, obviously, there's the extortion of the data itself if, if the bad guys start releasing the information that they took from you. But it seems to me like even just the fact that that uh, they could make a public disclosure that you were breached at all uh, could potentially have reputational damage. Yes, absolutely. Uh,
3: with double extortion ransomware, the reputational hit is uh, much more significant than with the more old-fashioned, you know, business interruption kind of events around ransomware. So the fact that you did get hit with ransomware uh, and you did lose control of your data uh, can be a very significant reputation hit so that's something that again organizations should keep in mind as they're having those risk decisions and maybe have some kinds of remediation plans in place or at least talk with the appropriate people in the organization to determine how would we deal with this kind of reputational hit
2: yeah, it's a really good point, and and I suppose it it emphasizes the the idea that you know being in the middle of an event like this is not when you want to be making those decisions. The the importance of pre planning, of having those plans in place ahead of time. Boy, it's hard to underestimate that, right? Absolutely, and you know if if you're not including a, a ransomware
3: scenario in some of your Incident tabletop exercises or your uh, BCDR planning, uh, you absolutely should because, like you said, you don't want to be making these decisions while you're dealing with an incident under the gun with the with the clock ticking. It's a lot easier to do a tabletop, sit down, game out one of these attacks, and then without any pressure have that frank and open discussion about what went well, what went poorly and how can you prepare your organization just in case it actually happens.
2: Nathan, I mean do you think that we are in a place right now where if an organization puts the right things in place, if they do the work ahead of time, can they go forward with confidence that the, the odds of them being hit by something like this and, and it having a significant impact are relatively low? You know, it, it,
3: it's, it's hard to say that because the, the landscape is changing day to day. And mm-hmm. there are new uh, vulnerabilities that are exploitable, Uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, I I don't know how many times I've had to update Chrome, for example, (laughs) this year due to zero days. So it's really tough to be able to say that if you have the right protections, uh, you'll you'll have a low probability of being hit. Um, What I think you can say, though, that if you have the right protections, you'll feel a lot better about how you'll actually deal with it If it happens and you will have planned this out, uh, you'll have a playbook and you won't be making decisions, you know, on the fly uh, and and making mistakes that uh, could be avoidable.
1: We'd like to thank Wayne Moore, the CISO for Simply Business, and Nathan Hunstead, the Deputy CISO for Code 42, for coming on the show to help us understand how security leaders are thinking about Double Extortion Ransomware. Cyberwire X is a production of the Cyberwire and is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Datatribe, where they are co-building the next generation of cybersecurity startups and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Eidman, our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and on behalf of my colleague Dave Bittner, this is Rick Howard signing off. Thanks for listening.